I was pretty much thrown into the fire, I would say. My first chief actually told me uh, that I'm going to learn more in the first 10 days in private practice than I did in all of residency, and boy, was he right. So it wasn't until medical school when I did a rotation in anesthesiology and I realized, oh, this is everything that I love and nothing that I don't love. <laughs> so There's always that, that saying that anesthesia is 98% boredom, but 2% you know, terror. The need is there. All you have to do is grab the opportunities that are in front of you. At Massimo, improving patient outcomes is top priority. In response to blood shortages due to COVID-19, Massimo is offering licenses for rainbow non-invasive blood constituent monitoring, including total hemoglobin, SPHB, for rainbow-ready devices at no additional cost. SPHB provides real-time visibility to changes or lack of changes in hemoglobin between invasive blood draws and has been shown in multiple studies to help clinicians improve outcomes. Discover continuous hemoglobin concentration monitoring. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. Throughout the COVID-19 crisis, Envision Healthcare has stayed the course in supporting its clinicians and healthcare partners. And together, they are answering the call as America's leading national medical group. Envision has helped mobilize and redeploy more than 500 caregivers, including anesthesiology providers, to hotspots around the country, including New Jersey, New York, Texas, and Florida. Leveraging more than 60 years of experience, Envision continues to be a vital player in healthcare for today and tomorrow. Learn more about Envision Healthcare by visiting www.envisionhealth.net. Hello, and welcome back to The Etherist. I'm Michael DePoe Wilson, your host. We're halfway through this season, and we've covered a lot of ground so far the numbers behind a looming physician shortage, the interplay between the business and the practice of anesthesia care, and many other issues facing the specialty today and in the years to come. The Etherist is a podcast about big picture topics and trends, and I'd like to think we've delivered some compelling information along those lines this season. But it's time to set the big picture stuff to the side for a moment. Because hidden within all these macro trends and big data stats, are the people who make up the specialty of anesthesiology, the people who will be most affected by all of these changes. We had the pleasure of speaking with over a dozen anesthesiologists for this season of The Etherist, and we decided to ask each one of them to share the story of their first job as an anesthesiologist post-residency. You could say that it's the human side of this story, and it represents something distinct about this idea of a physician shortage, and that is that in order to address any potential shortage, we will need to hear a lot more stories like these. Oh my God, yes. My first job was the same job for the next 20 years later. <laughs> I, I joined Yale University School of Medicine in 1989, and I did not leave until 2008. My name is Zaev Kane. I'm a chances professor of anesthesiology, medicine, and orthopedics at the University of California, Irvine. Sure, I'm very happy to be here. My name is Dr. Karen Seibert. I'm an associate professor of anesthesiology at UCLA Health. My first job as an anesthesiologist was not actually my first job. My first job when I finished college was reporting for the Wall Street Journal. 
And then after that, I decided that I really wasn't meant to be a reporter. And I went back and finished up some pre-med prerequisites, went to medical school, and then uh, did my anesthesiology residency at Yale. I think anesthesiology is an endlessly fascinating field. There, there are new challenges and new advances all the time. My name is John DiCapua. I uh, am CEO of North American Partners in Anesthesiology, and I am a clinical anesthesiologist. My career has taken me from clinical to academic uh, to business and administrative, uh, and it's been an absolutely fascinating journey. The need is there. All you have to do is grab the opportunities that are in front of you if you're passionate about them. My name is Dr. Adam Bloomberg. I'm a full-time practicing anesthesiologist. So when I finished residency, I was uh, looking for a facility and a group that would provide me a very similar experience. So I wanted something that had trauma, OB, high-risk patients, um, where I would able to hone my skills because my first chief actually told me uh, that I'm going to learn more in the first 10 days in private practice than I did in all of residency. And boy, was he right. The minute you're actually on your own and it's you, you really do learn a lot. Also, I wanted to be a part of a, a larger entity that would also allow me not only to grow as a clinician, but grow as a professional in medicine. Um, and I was thankful that I stayed in my practice in my first job where I am currently. I'm now chief of the system and regional medical director, but that's still the, the hospital I practice at. 12 years um, this September. Well, uh, mind you, it was a number of years ago, Michael, and so it's a little different then than it is now. I was pretty much thrown into the fire, I would say finished training and then I came to Corpus Christi to a children's hospital. I was the second full-time pediatric anesthesiologist and I had a newborn baby. And when I got here, the person I joined said, you know, I've been on call for almost a year. I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to take some time off. <laughs> so I was essentially by myself with two residents did 32 open hearts, 260-something children the first month I was here, on call 24-7, seven days a week, and I had a newborn at home, and my husband was starting his practice. So it wasn't exactly what I had expected when I first got here. <laughs> Hopefully people don't do that too often anymore. My name is Amy Pearson, and I'm a physician anesthesiologist and pain physician at the University of Iowa. I grew up in a family where I didn't really know a lot of other women professionals at all at school or church or anywhere. So I didn't really know too much about medicine as a career for me. Most, most of the women in my family were uh, social workers or nurses or teachers. My mom was a teacher. I kind of just assumed that I would be one of those things. So I actually graduated with a nursing degree and I worked for about four years as a nurse before I went to medical school. So one of my favorite things to do in the ICU was when our patients needed a bedside procedure and I got to be a part of all of that and I got to do some of um, some of the procedures like you know ultrasound guided IVs, things like that. So I knew that I liked all of that stuff. So it wasn't until medical school when I did a rotation in anesthesiology and I realized, oh, 
this is everything that I love and nothing that I don't love. <laughs> so uh, once, once I did that, it was pretty, pretty clear that that was a good choice. So my name is Jonathan Gouri. I am an associate professor in the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Uh, I went to medical school with the desire to be a sports medicine surgeon, so to be an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, and that's because uh, football's always been a big part of my life. If you had asked me if when I was 16, I would have said I was going to the NFL. But uh, there aren't a lot of uh, 5'10 stocky guys in the NFL, so that wasn't going to work out for me. Uh, and at some point, I then realized that what I was looking for wasn't really the actual, the actual proximity to sports. It was the feeling like I was in a sport. It was that feeling of running out of a tunnel, uh, that feeling of being fourth and one on the one yard line and everyone looking to you to kind of be the hero or to save the day. And at some point I realized that I actually got that in anesthesia. There's always that that saying that anesthesia is 98% boredom, but you know, 2% terror. I actually really felt like I performed well in that 2%. <laughs> well, I think it's a wonderful job. I've never wanted to do anything else. 16 years that I've been doing anesthesia, it's changed 180 degrees. Great people are coming in the profession. I think this year's residency group was the best ever in history. There were so many talented people. It shows that it's a great field, maybe one of the very best in all of medicine. I think we just touched the surface on what our specialty can provide. So I'm excited to see what the next 10, 15 years will show as well. Anesthesiology is a much-loved medical specialty, a great career in medicine, and for many people, it is a calling. And that is what we want to focus on in this episode. Why do people choose to become anesthesiologists? And how can the people already in the door convince more to follow them into what Dr. K describes as the very best in all of medicine? This is Anesthesiology News Presents. The Etherist, Season 2, Episode 3, A Perfect Match. Envision Healthcare is a leading national medical group of more than 27,000 clinicians that treat more than 35 million patients each year, and their strong presence in anesthesiology empowers clinical departments across the country to deliver high-quality care, in response to COVID-19, Envision continues to look to their anesthesiologists, CRNAs, and CAs as critical members of their care team and mission to maintain America's healthcare safety net. To learn more about Envision Healthcare, connect with them at ASA 20 Virtual Scientific Assembly on October 2nd through the 5th, or visit www.envisionhealth.net. Now more than ever, your patient's safety is top priority at Massimo. While inhaled nitric oxide therapy is currently being investigated as a potential treatment for lung complications associated with COVID-19, excessive use may lead to methemoglobinemia. SPMET is a breakthrough measurement that allows clinicians to non-invasively and continuously monitor methemoglobin levels in the blood. Discover how SPMET can help you track methemoglobin saturation during ventilation. 
Visit Massimo.com to learn more. It's nice to take a step back from all of the macro trends and larger scale analysis of the specialty and hear from the people who make anesthesiology a great place to work. And it is clear to see that the same passion is still a major component for newly minted anesthesiologists as well. In fact, I spoke with two anesthesia residents in the Johns Hopkins Anesthesiology Residency Program about why they decided to practice anesthesiology now and what their experience has been like so far. The first resident, Dr. Joe Walpole, is a CA3 and the chief resident at Johns Hopkins Department of Anesthesia and Critical Care Medicine. He completed his MD-PhD degrees at the University of Virginia Medical School and did a general surgery internship before starting his residency. Could you tell me when you first realized that you wanted to um, be a doctor, and specifically an anesthesiologist too, um, and, and like what that experience was like, why you decided you wanted to do this? I consider myself sort of an accidental anesthesiologist um, because this was not where I probably thought I would be if you'd asked me that question 15 years ago. Um, when I was in undergrad, uh, I was studying biomedical engineering and had really thought I was going to go for a PhD, and that, that was my career path. And while I was doing some research in a lab up in Boston, I had actually realized that sitting at a bench and doing work in an isolated room away from other people was not very fun. And so I transitioned to a different lab that was actually um, located at Brigham and Women's Hospital in the Department of uh, Surgery there and was doing more biological research, research in a clinical setting. And my mentor was an MD, PhD who opened my eyes to the idea of a clinician scientist and the idea that you can be both a clinician and a researcher. And that was what got me on the path to becoming a doctor. And she further mentored me to continue my research efforts and apply to the MD PhD programs. As far as determining when I wanted to be in anesthesia, I was really torn. I didn't know what I wanted to do as a medical student. Um, the way the MD-PhD program worked, you do your two years of didactic classroom learning, then you take some time off to do your research for your PhD, and then you come back to do your clinical clerkship years. And it was during the clerkship year that as I was going from rotation to rotation, I realized I liked a little bit of everything. Um, and I had some good friends who were anesthesia uh, attendings at the time that I had trained with years prior. Um, and they said, oh, you should come do another rotation of anesthesia because you don't really get a taste for that as a medical student. And I did as an elective one month rotation at anesthesia. And that really opened my eyes to the ability to be your own one-stop shop provider in the OR. You got to have that minute to minute excitement of being in the operating room. You got to make your own clinical decisions. You got to decide how you wanted to intervene and make that intervention all on your own. Um, and you didn't have to wait to place an order or wait for a, 
edification to have an effect over time. And so it that to me was really exciting and also appealed to the engineer in me who loves machinery and buttons and switches and physiology and graphs and all of that. So uh, I think it was a natural fit once I realized that that was available. I also spoke with Dr. Walpole's fellow resident, Dr. Marius Fassbinder, who just finished his residency at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Fassbinder is also an IMG, an international medical graduate. So you're from Germany. Could you just tell me where where you grew up? I uh, grew up in the city of Munich, which is uh, located in the south uh, east of Germany. And uh, that's that's where I uh, did my high school. After high school, I had a um, service deployment. At the time, it was still uh, the case in Germany that a male high school graduate had to either go to the military or um, take a civilian role at some sort of um, um, community service. And I became an ambulance driver for a year, which raised my interest in medicine and uh, let me decide to study medicine. So from that year, uh, what was your schooling like uh, that led you up to the point where you uh, came to study in the U.S.? In most European countries, if not all, um, you go straight from high school into medical school. And the medical school programs are longer because they teach you the basic science for the first couple of years and then the clinical part later on. Um, in Germany, it was at least six and a half years of study in medical school. And the, the tricky part is getting into medical school. And I, I failed to get into a medical school in Germany at the first place. So I applied elsewhere and ended up moving to France, where the system was uh, slightly different. And I did two years of medical school in France first, and then uh, decided to move back to Germany, uh, where I completed medical school and actually started the first year of residency. I imagine that it probably would have been easier to stay in Germany and practice medicine. Is that right? <laughs> it would have been easier. Yeah, I was. I was very much. I was very scared coming here in the, the first place. I mean, what? So, what was the motive? The motivating factor for you? What? What was driving you to to Baltimore to train? There were two factors. Uh, one factor is uh, the nature of the residency training in the United States um, compared to Germany and a lot of other um, European countries. It's uh, a whole lot more structured here. Um, so when you look at anesthesia training, um, you know that after three years plus one year of intern year, you're going to be uh, an anesthesiologist. Um, whereas in the most uh, European countries, it's, uh, it's different. It goes uh, with the amount of procedures you need to get done. Even though you have those procedure requirements here um, in the United States, um, in Germany and other places, um, they're much higher, and uh, it become it can become very political and very complicated um, to do that. Um, and in addition, there's um, there's no clear separation of trainees and uh, attendings in European countries. Uh, so, for example, as a as a first year trainee in anesthesiology. I was, I was, my salary was not 
that much different from uh, an attending salary. Um, and if you look at the training uh, here in the United States, um, the resident salary is much lower, but at the same time, your program somewhat pays you by training you. So there's a much, much bigger commitment to educating, uh, educating residents and um, making sure they, uh, they learn what they need to learn. And it's, uh, it's a big, big investment. I, I can actually compare the two because I trained for a year as a, as a resident in Germany. But then I came here and um, I noticed quite a difference, like the, the, the way rotations were structured, the way uh, we had lectures and all of that. It was very, very much organized here compared to what I was used to from back home. So Dr. Fassbinder had a unique journey on his way to completing his residency training at Johns Hopkins. He was educated and trained in medicine in three separate countries on two continents, and he gained some interesting perspective on the merits and shortcomings of the medical education system in each country. In addition to everything he mentioned, he also noted one key, almost crucial difference between his experience and that of all of his equally accomplished peers, like Dr. Walpole. He didn't have to pay for it. And that is a fact that he says he is incredibly thankful for. And one more thing about Dr. Fassbinder's experience. He mentioned before that he had two reasons for choosing to come to the U.S. to complete his residency program. Um, and the second reason that made me come here is uh, I met a girl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The time and energy and motivation from individuals who undertake medical training is a testament to the quality of the medical profession, and especially in anesthesiology. We've heard numerous times in this episode how passionate people are about the specialty, and every single one of them went through years of training for the privilege to practice anesthesiology. But sometimes passion and motivation are not enough to make the difference. One example is the CMS rule that caps the funding for the number of resident spots in anesthesiology, as well as most other specialties. And those caps have a significant impact on the growth potential of the specialty. This came up when I was talking to Dr. Mary Dale Peterson, the president of the ASA, about the potential for physician shortages. Are there other kind of bottlenecks that might be causing the number of anesthesiologists in the field to not match the demand that's coming? Well, I would say there are not enough slots, and I would go back to the federal government, which has frozen um, the number of residency slots back to 1997. So as we've had a growing uh, U.S. population and an aging U.S. population, the federal government has not changed its funding uh, for those numbers. of, of They've capped them, and that's kind of what I'm referring to as the cap. And so we have states like New York who have a ton of residency training programs, and this actually goes back to 1997, um, that are, you know, fairly generously funded. But then you have states like Texas, Florida, California that have become significantly more populated since 1997 is in comparison with New York, and they, they've been frozen since that time. So it's a funding problem because CMS has not 
kept up with the funding of, of graduate medical education for the needs of the U.S. population. Right. And are there uh, efforts to to push the government to change those caps or to, to increase the funding in, in those areas? Well, I think we have tried at a federal level, and even some states have become so frustrated, Texas being one of them, we actually have separate state GME funding um, that is helping. We're like, I think, 42nd in the nation in physicians per capita. We import a ton of physicians. It's still not enough for our growing population. And so the state has set aside uh, GME dollars to help fund that. They also have loan forgiveness programs to encourage people to come and practice in Texas. If, if you know, you're in certain specialties or you practice in certain parts of the of the state, then then you can have really hundreds of thousands of dollars forgiven in loans. It would be a better solution for CMS to raise their caps. Unless something changes with the policy and the resulting caps to residency slots and anesthesia programs, then anesthesiology won't be able to address the increased demand projected in the AAMC report, which would be like trying to afford increasing expenses on a fixed income. As we heard with Dr. Peterson, moving the specialty forward and positioning anesthesiology for the future is not always about passion and effort. Some elements, like federal funding rules, just get in the way no matter what people inside the specialty do. But while the federal government can be made to change its rules, as it has in the past, there is another barrier to increasing the number of potential anesthesiologists that is much harder to change. A lack of diversity. When we talk about diversity efforts, there's kind of three arms to it. This is Dr. Amy Pearson, She's a physician anesthesiologist and pain physician at the University of Iowa. She is also the president of Women in Anesthesiology and the chair for the ASRA Fall Conference in 2022. There's the diversity, there's the inclusion, and then there's the equity. Diversity is just the numbers game. So we only have 37% of medical students going into anesthesiology when medical schools are 50% women. So we have a, we have a diversity problem. Our numbers are not there. I'd be remiss to not point out that we also have low numbers compared to the population, even of medical students, for underrepresented minorities, too. So we've got a numbers problem. But even if you fix the numbers and doctor them and get them up to 50% and you get them all like equal to whatever the medical student population is, you still don't necessarily have inclusion. And inclusion is that feeling of belonging. So, I mean, that's that's kind of what I was talking about with my first job. I wanted to feel like, you know, people could, could tease me in public and we would all laugh about it instead of be hurt. You know what I mean? And I, I'm, I'm the only white lady in my faculty in my division. And, um, and I feel very respected and, and belonging to my group. You have to have people feeling belonging and included, but that doesn't mean that those, even if you feel like you belong, it doesn't mean that you have equity in terms of opportunities for your career. So even though you may have a division that's, you know, 50% women and they all get along and everything, well, what if all the leaders don't represent who they are representing? So it's hard to get equity until you have diversity and you have inclusion belonging first. So really, all of this stuff is a culture change. How does gender inclusivity 
and, and gender equity within anesthesiology need to change before we get to that potential shortage to help prevent that shortage from happening, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, how we talked about, you know, diversity, inclusion, equity, um, there is a, still a fair amount of attrition of women and minorities in medicine, not just from uh, from academics, but from anesthesiology as well. I'm not as familiar with the data on um, unrepresented minorities, but probably because nobody's looked yet, um, which I think really, really needs to happen with some urgency. Back to your your question about how how diversity plays in here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some stats. Um, so when we think about millennials, those are people essentially like 40 years old to um, 26 years old. So basically, all of our residents and early career faculty, 21% of them are Hispanic, 16% of them are Black, and 7% of them are Asian, and more than half of children under five are non-white. So when we think about our workforce in the future. If we are not recruiting, building up, doing everything we can, we can to attract people of color, to attract women, we're doing a disservice to our specialty because what a talent pool we are missing right there. So I consider diversity an emergency state here, um, not just in anesthesiology, but in medicine as well, because do we only want to pick from half of the population? No, we want the best of the whole population, don't we? And so where does that, where does that start? You have to wait around for a long time before that, that particular breakdown, that snapshot of 2020, the kids that are five years old today get to the point where they're practicing anesthesiologist. Um, so how, how can you kind of convince maybe like a high school kid to consider becoming an anesthesiologist? Is that something that you just kind of have to hope that enough people get into med school and then you fix that problem in med school? Um, yeah, so that is a very big question. You are absolutely right that a lot of this boils down to quality of schools and where our priorities are as a country. And, um, you know, I, I don't mean this in a, in a political way, but we need to invest in our younger generation um, with equity as well. I think one of the biggest things, um, like we talked about, is really working on those issues within anesthesiology right now, because we already are not representing um, diverse groups as we should be based on the population of medical school, based on the general population of the community as well. So we already have a problem and need to work on that within anesthesiology first. So once, if we can do that, then like, like we said before, naturally we can get more um, more diverse people attracted to our specialty because they see people like them. They know, you know, just like I was concerned when I was a medical student, they know that they can see that there are people who can, who have done this before, who seem pretty cool, who can mentor me through this. Anesthesiology as a specialty has struggled to reach the equal representation mark. The U.S. Census estimated in 2019 that people who identify as Black and African American make up roughly 13% of all Americans. And in 2017, a Medscape.com lifestyle survey on the specialty of anesthesiology claimed that Black and African American physicians make up only 3% of all anesthesiologists. 
But as Dr. Pearson said, the numbers are hard to pin down because of a lack of high quality data. And not knowing the details on a lack of diversity can lead to issues when it comes to making key decisions about the future of the specialty, or in one case, in medical training standards. You know, how does subjectivity come into play when you change to a pass-fail system for, for this test? You know, and I'm, I'm going to, I hopefully I won't give too long of an answer to that question, but I'll, I'll, I'll step back for a second. This is Dr. Jonathan Gorey. He's an associate professor of anesthesiology at the University of Arkansas for medical sciences. He's also the director of the chronic pain division there and the chair of the opioid stewardship committee, as well as the program director for the chronic pain fellowship. And Dr. Gorey teamed up with Dr. Pearson to write an editorial in the Journal of Clinical Anesthesia on racial and gender bias. The title of that piece was, Could Eliminating U.S. MLE Step 1 Scores Introduce Gender and Racial Bias? And I will say that I think the automatic assumption whenever you take uh, a standardized test out of the admissions process is that it's to the benefit of minority groups. And that's because we are often kind of the thing that's often discussed is that minority groups often score lower on standardized tests because standardized tests in and of themselves are biased. Uh, when you look at SATs, ACTs, LSATs, you know, and, and MCATs all the way up. Um, and that students who come from, uh, you know, higher income backgrounds are going to have more access to te text test prep to schools that are going to better prepare them for tests. And so they're going to, they're going to do better. Um, I think Dr. Pearson and myself really wanted to examine things from the other side of that coin and possibly say that maybe we shouldn't make that assumption. And I think you really hit the nail on the head when you talked about the subjectivity. Um, a lot of times, especially when it comes to residencies and fellowships, which are very small programs, you know, residencies often have anywhere from 25 to six people in them. Fellowships have anywhere from one to six people in them. And the groups that make the decisions on those fellowships are normally um, in academic environments. And the majority of people who have those roles of power in academic empowerments happen to be white men. And a lot of times the subjectivity that comes in is how much do I want to spend time with this person over the next year? How much do they fit into our program or fit into our alumni? And how do I feel when I sit in a room with them for five minutes? that those statements nat naturally contain or can be influenced by implicit biases. Um, and they don't necessarily have to be explicit biases. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that someone has to be, not be well-meaning, but oftentimes people feel more comfortable around people who are like them. And so if the people who are the decision makers happen to, you know, like to, like to watch football on Saturdays, then they are probably going to um, pick people who like to watch football on Saturdays, right? Um, 
And that's going to lead to a male bias. Um, if, you know, if the, if the people who choose like to play golf or, you know, like to dress a certain way, then they're going to pick people who like to do those things also, because it's going to be more enjoyable to have people in the program who share your hobbies, share your interests, and then also make you feel comfortable. And so, uh, I find, or, or my fear is not really that I am overly concerned that if we make this change, that that bias is 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 going to run rampant. It's more that I think both of us wanted to start a conversation so that we're more intentional about how we choose residents and how we choose fellows. And that even if we don't have that objective measure, because that decision has already been made, that we're not going to have it, that we are at least thoughtful about what we use to replace it and that we don't replace it with the things that we've always relied on, which are fit and feel and comfort. And that we think about that maybe our group will be stronger if we choose someone that makes me uncomfortable or someone who doesn't have the same interests as me. Because then they're going to make me think in a different way and they're going to challenge me to do different research than I want to do. And in the long term, our field will be better and our programs will be better. But, you know, the one chart that I've been able to find that sort of speaks to percentages in terms of uh, racial diversity in the field, that found that it's only about 3% of the field is uh, Black and African-American and about 3.5% um, is a uh, Hispanic or Latino. The makeup of the country doesn't match. Um, you know, is that partly because there's already a lot of bias in the system in terms of getting anesthesiologists trained? I think it, it, it starts all the way, all the way back. And so I think that we as a field, and, and we're trying to do some of this work in pain recently, but we need to improve pipeline programs. We need to improve exposure. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just speak to, and, and I'll pick out a couple of points, but there's so many, and, and this is a, a conversation in and of itself, but, um, for a lot of African-Americans, um, you know, there are, their access to physicians who look like them and the idea that I can be a physician, um, is often not there. And so, and to counter that, I try to do as much in the community and make myself as available as I can, because um, I hope, I always hope that there is some 14-year-old, 17-year-old, 22-year-old who hasn't met a Black physician who is, you know, very proud of their Blackness and involved in the Black community, um, who may inspire them to say, oh, I, I can go into medicine or, or, or there is an opportunity to go into medicine. Someone who looks like me can fit in. Um, and so I think that's an issue. Um, I also think, and this is speaking specifically to the field of anesthesiology, um, and, and, and this is no secret to the medical profession, but there's often a mistrust of the medical field in the African-American community. And that stems from 
years of, you know, different, a lot of things that have happened, you know, the, um, you know, the trials having to do with syphilis, for example. Um, also, um, I know a lot of, of, of black patients don't feel comfortable in doctor's offices because they often feel like they're judged or they're talked down to, or they're, or, or they're assumed to not be intelligent or they're not given the opportunity to ask questions in the same way that, you know, a majority person may. And so when you think about what an anesthesiologist does, our job is to take someone who is having possibly the, the scariest moment of their life. You know, they literally are, are going into surgery. They don't know what's going to happen. They're giving up all agency in what's going to happen in that room because they're going to be asleep. And they honestly, a lot of times don't know if they're going to make it out. Um, and a lot of those people, that experience is a much more fear provoking experience to someone who already has a natural distrust of the medical field of physicians. And so I think that we as black people need to, it behooves us to be adequately represented in our field that helps usher people through this fearful experience because we understand what it's like to be black. We understand what those relationships are with the medical community. Um, and we can help frame those conversations, help with research to make sure that those patients feel more comfortable and also have better outcomes. Because, and, and I think the most tangible example of this that we can see is in, is in laboring women. And so we know that black women have much poorer outcomes than white women when it comes to labor. And that's something that's been illuminated multiple times in the research. And while we're not 100% responsible for a woman's care, you know, during their labor, we're responsible for a lot of it as, as a field in anesthesia. And I would say that one way that we can help improve those numbers is to increase the number of black women who are there, who are helping make decisions, who are help fighting the biases that happen, those decisions that are made that actually end up with black women having higher morbidity and higher mortality rates during childbirth. What are some of the things that maybe all anesthesiologists, all, all anesthesia programs should consider in terms of changing that, that issue? I, I think it's the responsibility of all, of all medical institutions to reach back into the community um, and, and try to improve the community. And so I think that as a medical institution, um, we should be in high schools and we, we should be that far down the line and inspiring the physicians of tomorrow and peaking interests of the physicians of tomorrow. Physician shortages, practice model debates, business consolidation. A lack of diversity is one of those issues that is not mentioned in the typical list of changes facing the specialty. And as both Dr. Pearson and Dr. Gorey explained, it is not a simple issue to fix. 
it would require expanding beyond the specialty, beyond the OR, beyond the hospital walls, beyond the conferences, and even to some extent, beyond the matching process. Increasing the number of women and people of color who enter anesthesiology would require a lot of outreach. And what would happen if people from every background in the U.S. started to seriously view anesthesiology as an option for their future? How would anesthesiology look in the wider healthcare landscape if it was fully representative? As we prepare today for what the future of anesthesiology holds with all of its many variables, should we also be looking to those individuals who make up the future of the specialty? Could the answer for how to manage these challenges that are facing the specialty be found in expanded resident programs or through early stage recruiting in high schools and middle schools? We've come a long way over these three episodes. From the AAMC report on a projected shortage of between 17 and 42,000 physicians, to the concerns over scope of practice rules, to the limitations of medical schools and residency programs, anesthesiology as a specialty and as a profession appears to be teetering on the edge of major, potentially catastrophic change, depending on who you ask. But as we saw through the stories in this episode, there is still hope and great enthusiasm for the field of anesthesiology. Just go back and listen to the stories at the beginning of the episode to hear the passion for the practice of anesthesia care. And there are plenty of other areas that should bring hope that the change to come will be positive. And we'll get into all of this more next week in the fourth and final episode of The Etherist. Thank you for listening. And if you are enjoying this season of The Etherist, please subscribe and consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. And if you really like what you're hearing, consider sharing us with your colleagues too. We would really appreciate that. Until next time, I'm Michael DePoe Wilson, and this is The Etherist. This season of The Etherist was created by Michael DePoe Wilson, your host, along with James Pruden. It was edited by Ken Christensen. The Etherist theme music was created by David Cullen and Andrew Russell. All other music in this episode was created by Blue Dot Sessions. Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Martin Barbieri, Kwangi Chung, Sophia Lee, Danielle DePoe Wilson, Betty Zong, and Kristen Janicone all contributed greatly to the making of the Etherist. And a special thanks to the sponsors of the show, Massimo and Envision Physician Services. Thanks for listening.